We read sacred scripture this evening from two portions. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Picking up our reading at verse 17 and reading through to the fifth verse of chapter 2. The topic being preaching. This section of Scripture is particularly fitting and most important to that subject. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 2, 2, verse 5. Following that, we turn to Ephesians 3. This is God's inspired word. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the, the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise and where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Have not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews required a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world. And things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So far we read from this portion of Scripture. Next, Ephesians 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And we read the first 13 verses. The text is the verses 7 and 8, Ephesians 3. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote a four in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the, and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. The text is verses 7 and 8. Let me read that once again. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power unto me who am less than the least of all saints. Is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ? May he bless the reading of his word. For this cause I Beloved congregation, the apostle is about to begin a prayer in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3 when very abruptly and without announcement, a whole new line of thought and speech emerges. Now he does eventually get to that prayer and you will recognize it. The beginning of it is found in verse 14. For this cause I... That's verse 14, that's how it begins. Just like verse 1, For this cause I, and then later on, Bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, of course, introduces his prayer. But now here in verse 1, it is, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you, Gentiles. And so verses 1 through 13 is a spirit work, holy interruption to prayer. And not only a holy interruption to prayer, it is also a holy interruption to a pattern that's emerging with how Paul is teaching the Ephesian Christians in this book of Ephesians. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 is doctrinal. There's a pattern of doctrine followed by prayer. The first half of chapter 1 is doctrine, the doctrine of the salvation of the triune God. God the Father choosing and electing and predestinating. God the Son redeeming. And God the Holy Spirit sealing His people with His Spirit. And then prayer, prayer in the verses 15 and following in chapter 1, doctrine followed by prayer, then chapter 2. The entire chapter 2 is all about doctrine, the doctrine of the amazing grace of God, the grace that saves. It's also the grace that reconciles. The first half of chapter 2 calls attention to how that amazing grace reconciles us vertically to God. And the second half of chapter 2 calls attention to how grace re reconciles people across different tongues, tribes, and nations in the church. And then now you would expect, as chapter 3 begins, prayer. Paul will get to that in verse 14, but for now, there's this holy interruption. Now, it's clear from verse 13 that the apostle had a profound pastoral concern for the Ephesian Christians, for he tells them that he has the desire for them that they faint not. In our terms, and our language today, that they not lose heart. Why? 
Why would the Ephesian Christians lose heart? Why would Paul be concerned with that? Three reasons, all stemming from the fact that now Paul is in prison. And being in prison, reason, reason number one, that's a blow to the Christian faith and a blow to the mission work of the early church, New Testament church. For Paul, you see, was an apostle and a missionary to the Gentiles. He was the spearhead of the mission work of the church. And putting him in prison seems like putting the gospel in prison. That's the first reason. Reason number two is why they might lose heart is because of the sufferings of the apostle in prison. Certainly, children and youth, it's no fun to be in prison, is it? Prison is not a fun place, and the apostle tells us that he suffered. It's through that word, tribulation. You'll find that word in verse 13, his tribulations. Literally, the things which squeeze the life out of him. That's reason two. Reason, reason number three, and still more, they might lose heart, even take a guilt trip for what was the cause of his imprisonment. Well, Paul had been with one called Trophimus, the Ephesian. He had been with one of them in Jerusalem when he was falsely accused of bringing him into the temple. See that in Acts chapter 21. So Paul tells them, don't lose heart because the sufferings of mine are for your glory. Those words of Paul together with his self-identification in verse 1 as the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, take us back to Acts chapter 9 verses 15 and 16 to an earlier point in his life whence the Lord reveals this about Paul who was just converted from Saul. Saul, the persecutor of Christians who was on his way to Damascus to arrest and persecute Christians. We read in God's word, but the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he, Saul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Isn't that ironical? Saul went to Damascus to arrest Christians, but himself was arrested by the grace of God. Grace that called him to the Christian faith. Grace that also called him into the ministry of the gospel. And for him particularly, grace still more that called him to be an apostle and missionary uniquely to the Gentiles. As he himself reveals in the verses 1 through 13, that triple wonder of grace would make him a steward of the gospel to bring that gospel to the Gentiles and in the course of those labors, labors which he was exactly called by God thereto, to perform, he would be with Trophimus the Ephesian when he was unjustly arrested and then imprisoned. So these Ephesian Christians should know that therefore there was no pity, no self-pity, no bitterness, no blame on the part of the apostle, but only honor and even joy. Paul can be heard saying to them, I am honored and I am joyful to be where I am because of who I am and what I have been called by God himself to do. 
I am exactly where I should be at this time in my life, in prison, according to God's will. My sufferings which were brought on me because of my apostleship to you Gentile Ephesian Christians bring you not disgrace, but glory, because it pleased God to work through my apostleship for you that you may no longer be held in bondage to sin. In a word, Paul embraced his calling. Paul knew who he was. Do you know who you are? And do I know who I am? Paul knew who he was and Paul knew exactly what he was called to do. And that for Paul was a truly liberating reality for him whilst in prison. Seeing things from a right perspective, focusing his mind on what's important, taking his mind away from all things that are not important and enabling him to prioritize life's choices. Accordingly then, his sufferings on account of his calling from God to them should not create a loss of heart for them, but instead are truly for their glory. The text before us tonight, verses 7 and 8, reminds us that at the heart of those ministerial labors that Paul was called to is preaching. Preaching, and rightly so. Because contextually, it is, the, it is preaching which is the glue and the connection between chapter 2 and chapters 4 through 6 in the book of Ephesians. Chapter 2, which talks of the church being saved and brought together, gathered together. Preaching is the chief means that brings home that truth. And once brought together and gathered together by that preaching, are also built up and edified by that same preaching in the life of Jesus Christ that believers share in him and describe in the manner of chapters de- describe in the manner as set forth in chapters 4 through 6 believers walking worthy of their vocation seeking and endeavoring the unity of the church serving in the church with their various gifts Husbands loving their wives as Christ loving the church and wives submitting to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And Christians in chapter 6 of Ephesians fighting the good fight of faith, putting on the whole armor of God. That being the case, I call your attention to call to the ministry of preaching unsearchable riches. Notice with me, the call of God to the ministry, the work of the ministry, and the power that fuels the ministry. The call of God to the ministry is fundamental and absolutely necessary for one who would serve as minister. That call kept the apostle properly focused and strong in his faith whilst he was in prison. And that call, very fittingly, appears right at the start of our text this evening in verse 7. You will notice verse 7, Whereof I was made a minister. That's Paul there. I was made a minister. Though the word call, you understand, is not explicitly there, the idea of it most certainly is. And that's found in the phrase, I was made was made a minister. When Scripture here uses the passive voice in relation to holy objects, holy persons and holy events, it very much is telling us who is the one who is active, who is the cause of it all. And of course, the cause is God. 
It was God who made Paul a minister. It was God who made him an apostle and missionary to the Gentiles. It's not man. It's not even the church. But God. God calls a man to the ministry. This calling, you understand, is basic to a person's ministry, which is why the apostle, as a norm, begins all his epistles by declaring it. And so, for example, Romans 1 verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Children and youth, are you listening? A servant of Jesus Christ. That's how Christians should see themselves. That's how Paul sees himself. Called and called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. That's Romans 1 verse 1. And again in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 1, Paul called, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. In a word, the calling of God is basically the credentials from God Himself that the man belongs to the office of minister. Without it, one has no right to the office and therefore has no right to perform the works of the office. But with it, one not only has the right to perform the works of the office and the right to the office, but also one will have the ability to perform the work and grow also in those abilities according to the gift of the grace of God over a time of service in his ministry. Now, since therefore this calling of the ministry is so important, we do well to consider briefly its various aspects. Four things tonight with regard to the call. Number one, gifts for the ministry. This is fundamental to one who would be called to the ministry and there are two categories of gifts, natural and spiritual. Natural gifts, first of all, first of all, the gift of public speaking, that's needed for the ministry. The gift of intellect, intelligence, linguistic gifts, a logical mind, also, the gift of leadership, that too. And to be sure, they don't all have to be top-notch, top-quality, top-level gifts. As in our children and youth getting A's for their classes, a B would do. Paul himself indicates in not so many words in 1 Corinthians 1 that he was a B kind of public speaker, not an A one, and that's fine. So natural gifts, but even more important than natural gifts is spiritual gifts. What spiritual gifts? Youth, young people and young adults, did you see that great spiritual gift staring, at, staring you at the face in the text this evening? All of us, did you see that great spiritual gift, that most important one? Listen. Paul describes himself as less than the least of all saints. Not even the least of all the saints, but less than the least. a speck of dirt, nothing more. That's Paul, that's how he views himself. Yes, the spiritual gift is humility. How much humility is needed in the work of the office, in any leadership position, and most certainly in the position of the minister. Great humility is needed. Great gentleness is needed. 
As David confesses in Psalm 18, the Lord's gentleness have made him great in Psalm 18. And gentleness there means this, that a person, God in the case of David, God comes down to David's level, reaches down to his level and scoops him up, lifts him up from the depths, out of the depths. That's gentleness. And so Jesus is meek and lowly, gentle and lowly, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Same idea. One who will be minister needs to be gentle, not that we talk down to people, but that we reach down to a person in his need, understand his need, and lift him up by the grace of God. Great humility, great gentleness, great holiness, great wisdom. Knowledge is needed, but wisdom on top of that. And so many gifts are needed, but the greatest of them all is love. Love abounding. Love abounding in the heart of a man called to the ministry. Love for God and for His Christ. And always first, then love for his church, and then love for his word. So, love to bring that word to the, the church, the people. Those be the gifts for the ministry. Then, number two, he who will be called to the ministry must meet the qualifications of Scripture. And in my mind, the qualifications of elder in Scripture spelt out in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, most certainly applies to the minister. Let me read those verses. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, that is a one-woman man, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality and apt to teach. And I want to encourage our young Men and boys, of good behavior, understand that you in your teen years may not consider yourself to be of good behavior, but don't worry, you mature, you sober up. I want to encourage you and to carry on now to given to hospitality, apt to teach. You learn and then you teach. Verse 3, not given to wine. Give up on the beer bottle, please. No striker, not greedy or filthy looker, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of those which are without, those outside of the church. He has a good name and reputation in his community, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now those timeless qualifications of God for elders directly are also fittingly applicable to ministers who share so much of the responsibilities of the elders. So there you have it, gifts, qualifications, and now number three, a growing verification of the call from within, worked by the Holy Spirit Himself, a deep personal conviction, a growing verification, and a growing verification also shared by those around him, by his spouse, by his children if they are old enough to understand these things, by his pastor, by, by his brethren, by his family, extended family, by his professors if he's in training. And last but not least, number four, a real call from a real church 
of God to come over and help us. Now, in relation to our great and critical need for ministers in our churches, I ask you, dear congregation, are you on the lookout for gifts among your teens, young boys for the ministry, Parents, are you teaching your children to love and pray for our churches? Do you bring these needs home to them in your household? Do you recognize these gifts, some of these gifts, and encourage these gifts to be developed among your children, your, your youth, your boys? Do any of our young fathers have ministerial gifts and qualifications, it's not too late to start. I went to seminary at age 33. It's not too late to start. I wasn't the oldest either to start. But really this, and at bottom this, do you, do you consider the ministry to be something desirable for yourself? and for your sons whom you love, and for extended family, nephews, people who you care about, do you consider the ministry something that is truly desirable in your heart of hearts? Hold on to that question and hold on to answering that question, and, now, and then answer that question Later on, when, it, when I ask it yet again, after the second point of the sermon, the work of the ministry. Consider now with me the work of the ministry. And the main work of the ministry is, of course, preaching. That's implied in Ephesians chapter 3, but it's rather explicit in 1 Corinthians 1. That's why I picked 1 Corinthians 1 to read. Verse 17, Paul tells us, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. It's preaching. The preacher's main work is preaching. The minister's main work is preaching. But there are other works he is called to perform as well, all in relation to it. Now to be sure, Proper works of the ministry do not include, number one, socializing with others, two, playing golf or tennis or other sports with others, though these things can and ought be done by a minister, though not as a work of the office, but as a member. Don't forget that too. Your minister is a member of the church so that he shares also organically in the life of the congregation and the interests of the congregation as well and gets to know the congregation more also from this dimension of socializing and fellowshipping and mingling with the congregation. Don't forget that ministers are members of the church. But to be sure, these are some of the other works of the ministry. Administering the sacraments, that's the title given to our ministers, minister of word and sacrament. Providing biblical counsel and guidance where needed, that too. Going house to house with visits, going to hospitals with visits. Teaching catechism, teaching, leading Bible study, and as well other pastoral labors. And all of this tells us that the main work of preaching of the minister is and must be done in the context of him being your pastor. The minister is the pastor and under-shepherd of a certain particular flock. And that means that he must know his sheep. He must make it his business to know you, to understand you, 
to understand your needs, to understand your challenges, to know and understand your gifts, what those gifts are, what they are not, and the, even the measure of those gifts and the potential for development in those gifts. And in light of all this knowledge, shepherds, preach to your, to a congregation's peculiar, particular need. And so now, specifically this evening, we ask, what is preaching? I'll keep it very simple tonight. Preaching is the official proclamation of the gospel in the service of Jesus Christ and on behalf of His church. The meaning of the word is to herald, to deliver God's message, the King's message. It's just as angels who are messengers of God bringing a message from God. The preacher, the minister, heralds God's message to his people. He delivers the message. It's not his message per se. It's the king's message. To preach is to herald in the original to keruzo. And that, you understand, is different from evangelizo, which is also translated preach in the King James. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, Therefore they that were scattered, scattered on account of persecution, scattered abroad, went everywhere, preaching the word. Now that word preaching there is evangelizo. It's not referring to a man standing behind a pulpit heralding the word of God. It's referring to members of the church. You echoing what you hear. That's the witness of the word. You echo what you hear. And echo is not exactly the original sound. It's close to it. The heart and essence of it is the same. But the echo of that word is such that you give expression to the gospel in your terms in your language, to that particular neighbor and that particular person with your particular knowledge. That's evangelizo. The scattered and persecuted saints of Acts 8 verse 4 were only and zealously exercising their calling given by Jesus to them shortly before his ascension into heaven. And that is the great commission that the New Testament believer and church, we are called to be witnesses unto him in Judea, in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the world. Missions and evangelism, therefore, is a very important task of the New Testament church, and preaching supports it, and that witness also must support the preaching works both ways. To herald or preach the gospel is to proclaim officially the message of God. And here that message is described this way in the text as the unsearchable, that is, unfathomable riches of Christ. Ministers bring Christ and that all by itself tells us that there are unsearchable riches. Christ, His name, His person, His works, heart of which is His cross. Christ. Christ, the divine word incarnate, is infinite and therefore is for the preacher and for any man also thoroughly unsearchable. And so that means that the message that the preacher brings has to be given by the king himself. Knowledge of and insight to the word of God needs to be given and given through much prayer and study and by his spirit. 
There is simply no other way. Because these are unsearchable riches, unfathomable, infinitely deep riches we speak of here. Now, to be sure, the Word of God is clear and our children and youth understand God's Word. God's Word is clear. But it is also deep. Very deep. We're soon going to go off on a vacation and if you happen to find yourself standing in front of a beautiful lake, on a bright sunny day, and you look right into the lake, you see that into the waters, and you say that the lake is clear. It's clear, that's one thing, but you can't see to the bottom of the lake, can you? It's deep. Well, that earthly analogy is akin to what we have here in this book. The Word of God is clear. The Word of Christ is clear. But it is deep. Very deep. Infinitely so. The wonderful truths and golden nuggets of the Word are revealed in Scripture and give God the glory and God Himself needs to give that to the minister. God gives, needs to give knowledge and insight to the preacher. For you see, it is not man but the Spirit that searcheth the deep things of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. Nor is that all. It is the Spirit who must give the preacher unction, his unction and his anointing, and be his help also as he delivers and brings. God's word to his people. So that whenever that word is brought and preached, it is done with authority. Preachers don't suggest because they bring the word of the king, they bring it authoritatively. They bring the must of the gospel and they do so with conviction. The Spirit of King Jesus, beloved, must give these things. And that leads well to my point here next, which is the difficulty and even impossibility of the work of the ministry. And you ask, what difficulty? Youth and children who are studying in the Christian school you know the life of the Apostle Paul somewhat, don't you? And when you consider that life, you know some of the difficulties of the ministry. Paul suffered shipwrecks. Paul was beaten, imprisoned. He was persecuted. Paul was hated because he brought the gospel. He brought his unsearchable riches, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And the natural feeling of man towards Christ is hatred. Paul suffered, suffered much. And especially so, the minister is a lead, and Paul was a lead soldier of Jesus Christ, going into battle and standing at the very front lines of battle. And we all know from, our, from earthly analogy that earthly battles and being on front lines of earthly battles can be a most dangerous thing. Well, ministers are leaders. Leaders on the front lines of the spiritual battles. He's exposed constantly to, the, to front line dangers. And as well, there are other well-known difficulties of the ministry it's no secret that it's very difficult to be a minister in our churches today in the past several years. Agendas for our ecclesiastical gatherings range from 100 to 400 pages. Imagine going through that once, three times a year for some four 
five times a year, doing that on top of bringing and studying God's Word to the church every Sunday, it's long hours, long, long hours in the ministry, and that man still has the same tasks and responsibilities to his wife and family. It's not only long hours, it's weird hours. Awkward labor. Sometimes ministers are on call 24-7. You never guess what some ministers are doing and where they're at on a Sunday morning at 3 in the morning. You could never guess that where men and ministers can be. And besides that, ministers live their lives with their families in a glass house. Everyone knows what the minister is up to. And he's a public figure. And he's expected to know the names of, of everyone. He's ex expected to know every one when he doesn't. And yes, there are surprises in the ministry as well that he must be prepared for. He must be prepared for anything and everything that comes his way. But at the same time, he's just like you with your same passions and weaknesses. So now we face the question again, do you consider the ministry a desirable thing for yourself, for your sons, for your loved ones, for those you care about, do you still consider that a desirable thing? These labors are well nigh impossible at times and the burden at times crushing, simply crushing. So he who would consider the ministry and who, he who is minister needs to know and remember and look for the power that fuels the ministry. And God is faithful. God supplies that power. What is that power? Let me read the text again. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of His power. Verse 8, unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's right. That power that fuels the ministry is grace. Grace that flows from the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Preachers who are preachers of grace are fueled by that very same grace. They promote, they proclaim, and they preach. As with the apostles, so also with every minister down through the ages, also this one here today, grace continually flowing from the cross is continually needed for all all the work of the ministry from the day from day to day to day and that of course brings up the matter of prayer and the importance of prayer ora et labora so said my dear late professor at seminary many, many years ago in the Latin, pray and work. That's the order. You have lots of work to do, and that applies not only to ministers, to you too, members of the church. You have lots of work to do. By all means, work. But pray. Won't you pray 
and pray first before we work. And so ministers pray. They do for themselves. But because even the great Apostle Paul asked for prayers from the Ephesian church for him, see Ephesians 6 verse 20, I too make the same request of you. For me, for your pastor, for all my colleagues, and for all faithful ministers, pray. Pray for us. We are in great need of your prayers. Pray that we may be effective instruments in His hand, sharp instruments, always ready for use and not blunt instruments to build up the people of God in love, to build up His church here on earth. Pray, and in the way of prayer, may the Lord Himself grant blessing to us all and glory to His great name through us. Amen. Father, bless this word. Use it to work in the hearts and lives of young men, if it be thy will, also in this congregation and in this sanctuary at this moment. To call them to the ministry, work in the hearts of our parents to encourage and nurture a spirit of servanthood, recognizing now also the gifts for the ministry to encourage their sons to consider the ministry. More and more, make us, O Lord, a prayerful people, bringing our needs constantly before the throne of grace, seeking thy blessing and the glory of thy name. Hear us. Hear us in thy love and mercy. For Jesus' sake, amen.